All right, so we are here in studio with Mo Odele, who is the founding partner at Vazi Legal and the founder of an amazing platform that's doing some great stuff in Africa, Scale My Hustle. Uh, Mo, it's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew. I've been looking forward to this, actually. Yes. Oh, well, I'm flattered. <laughs> I'm flattered. So, um, you know, what's, uh, what, what's it like for you in D.C. as, you know, someone who kind of came up in Nigeria and then came over, I believe, to get your, uh, or to go to law school, right, mm-hmm, at Columbia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I, I recently moved to DC only a couple of months ago, um, and I used to be in New York, which is great. And I just thought I just wanted to do a lot more international work focused on Africa. Uh, New York is fantastic. Um, there's a lot of international work there, but not so much focused on the continent. Um, so I'm I'm new in DC, like maybe a, a <laughs> about three months or so. Okay. Um, so the idea is to just explore and just see. And then your question to what is like? That's an interesting question because um, when I first moved here it was just trying to figure out what was going on um, but over time it was easy to just come across people who were interested in the kind of things I was interested in right um, which is basically just innovation in Africa very simple uh, and DC was just the place for me I found myself from New York coming all the time to DC for conferences um, and just meeting people and I just thought you know what let me just make the move so so far so good I've met pretty interesting people I like the crowd um, and yeah it's very international yeah fantastic and you know when I, when I first started this podcast it actually wasn't just focused on Africa it was just emerging in frontier markets yeah. uh, I just kind of personally became fascinated by what was happening in Africa because when I, when I was doing interviews with entrepreneurs there it was just so different than what we were being presented with in the mainstream media which is you know this this one-sided narrative of just yeah. war poverty and disease and so um, as I've kind of built up this media company I've was at first was like okay I need to go on the continent should I go to Lagos Nairobi maybe Joburg oh I remember seeing um, you in Lagos yes yes I, it's so funny going to Lagos because when I when I get on the plane people kind of look at me they're like are, are you sure like you want, you want to come in um, but but then I, I realized that DC is actually a fantastic place if if you're doing business in Africa and you yeah. want kind of your international hub DC is a fantastic place to be. I agree. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. Africa business community is very small, mm-hmm. right? And so it's very, very easy to get plugged in once yeah. you start, you know, meeting a couple of people here. But um, I, I do want to kind of start off with just on your story because mm-hmm. you know what I um, what I see some from afar in, in your Twitter feed is just like just pure hustle, like, <laughs> like un, unbelievable hustle. And so, like, how did was that natural for you, or how did that get you know instilled? Um. You know, I want to say that it's. I don't. I, I want to say it's natural, but okay. I don't also want to come off as dishonest. But you know, it's it's very deliberate in the sense that when I when I was living when I was living in Nigeria, which was about five years ago, I knew what I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And what I didn't want to do was sit in the law firm just pouring over documents day in day out. I was bored out of my mind. Um, so I knew that it was something else to be done. And at the time, I had provided services to different startups in, you know, just very, very basic, like, company registration over a couple of years. And as interesting as it would sound or unbelievable, five years ago, the startup ecosystem in Nigeria, which is where I'm from, was actually very different from what you have now. It was you know, people were doing stuff, but very fragmented. So most of the people were doing stuff were mostly people who had lived in the U.S. or somewhere else before and then come back home and say, you know what, this is a solution that could work. There was no startup community as it is now. The, the entire growth that you can see happened in the last three or four years or so, something like that, or maybe even less. Um, so as at then, so five, six, seven years ago, there was nothing like that. Um, and then I would look, you know, I would always 
watch movies and look at things and be like, you know, this this whole vibrant startup ecosystem happening in Silicon Valley, this is really interesting and fascinating. And at the time I was applying to school, I actually applied, I was applying to schools in California because I just really wanted to know um, about Silicon Valley. And I got into a couple of schools. I got into a couple of schools in California and I just couldn't fund my education that year. And then I didn't go. And by the next year, I thought, you know what, let me try it again. And then somehow I ended up in Colombia, which was also great for me. Um, but when I, when I got to Colombia again, I was really focused on, like, how do you take all this innovation that is happening around the world and use it to just solve basic problems on the continent? And when I say the continent, I, I'm referring to Africa. And the reason why that was fascinating for me is because there's this whole narrative about, like, Africa can leapfrog, Africa is rising. We've had a whole series of different narratives, you know, come and go. But the truth is, when you look at the basic problems, people are still hungry. People are still, you know, out of jobs. People, are st- people still don't have access to healthcare. So no matter how much you're leapfrogging or whatever, rising, the, pro- the basic problems are still there and the statistics don't lie. So for me, it was like, okay, so how do we actually take out all the noise, right? Like, just tear apart all the noise and just focus on what the main issues are. The main issues are, you know, poverty, hunger, lack of education, lack of healthcare, and then how do we start building companies that can actually solve these problems? Um, so that was it for me, and, you know, everything I've done is just really centered around that, you know, entire piece, regardless of how, you know, the form or the way, the, the form and the way I have done it is just based off my experience and my own education, um, but still, that's just the core for me. So again, and then you also have to balance all of that social good. And this is something I always tell people all the time that you might want to save the world and all of that, but you also need to be able to make money. So for me, it's like, how do you combine, how do you combine this, this thing I have for, um, for impact and at the same time, you know, be able to earn a living. So everything you see around the hustle is just me trying to figure out how to balance that. Right. It's, it's not been easy, but you know, it's, it gets easier as you go. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, startups in Africa is, is so interesting because it's, it's a world that exists in parallel to mm-hmm. the the need for capital in other areas like mm-hmm. infrastructure. Cer- certainly, he- healthcare is yeah. is a big problem. That you know, healthcare startups, um, you know, I, th- I think they have their place, but there are aspects of the problem that you you can't entrepreneur your way out of. Yeah. Like they're they're too big. They require. I mean, roads is a perfect example of like a problem that like an entrepreneur can't just you know start a company yeah. to solve that. That's yeah. that's a top down thing that needs to be um, that needs to be solved. And so when you so when you mention impact, I mean, do you feel like that conversation has kind of been hijacked by some people? Because there are so many, I shouldn't say so many, there are some VC funds that invest in Africa. And all because they invest in Africa, they say they're an impact fund, mm-hmm. right? So do you feel like that conversation of impact investing has kind of been hijacked? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's been hijacked in different ways um, in in different ways in different places. And just for context, before I started Vasiligo, I, I worked for an impact investing consulting firm, um, and we did a lot of work uh, around the world. So we were, were, geographic, were geography agnostic, so we did a lot of work in Southeast Asia, we did a lot of work in the UK, we did a lot of work in the US, um, and one of the, and even the Middle East. But one of the things that was clear was that <laughs> in terms of like the impact conversation, a lot of the impact conversation was happening in in the US and in the UK. And then so what would happen is 
or maybe in Europe, let me say. And then what will happen is you have people who are impact, impact experts, you know, go to other places and say, this is what impact looks like. But for me, you know, what was really apparent was that impact looks differently depending on the context you're in, mm. right? Like, so whatever is impact in India is very different from what is impact in Kenya. And until we begin to understand that conversation, there is no general definition of, you know, impact or impact investing. And the reason I say that is because, again, this, this, this issues, you know, they manifest differently in different places, right? So if you have healthcare challenges in the U.S., everybody knows that it's a, you know, broken healthcare system. We all know that. But the, but the healthcare challenges in the U.S. are very different from the healthcare challenges in, say, Nigeria, for instance. Right. So people in the U.S. are thinking about, like, you know, insurance and stuff like that and access. In, in, in Nigeria, we're thinking about, we're thinking about, you know, infrastructure. We're thinking about, you know, so, so the problems manifest differently. So for me, in terms of, like, impact, I, 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 there's something I always say, and I'm like, see, a lot of VC firms just do this thing where they, you know, impacts washing, where it's just, like, it just washes <laughs> with so much lingo, and then you talk about the sustainable development goals, and that's it. Yeah. But if you don't understand the context um, of where you are investing, what's going to happen is you're just going to, yeah, you're, you're just going to literally waste your time. Right. Literally, especially so if you want to be an impact investor in a context, I think a lot of resources has to go into understanding the problem that you're trying to solve and what you're trying to achieve. And until you understand, because when you understand those problems, you can see exactly how the problem manifests and then you can know the particular companies that are solving it. And why this is important is because you also now have a lot of startups just springing up because they want to get money from impact investors they just basically replicate what has what impact investors have historically invested in in another country replicates it in another in maybe you know nigeria where this is not a business that we even need to exist right it doesn't need to exist but because impact investors like it you know it exists and then they raise money for it and then you know but in terms of like the actual impact it's zero yeah but that, that I think that localization context yeah. is actually a um, more of a differentiating factor for African startups than I think they realize. I think a lot of uh, countries in Africa, their the culture is a little it's it makes people too humble mm-hmm. with their startups and mm-hmm. with their ideas. Where a lot of Western companies or you know from Europe or China looking to enter these markets, I mean. They, they don't have the same kind of uh, localization advantage that some of these startups on the ground have. Yeah. And so I think a lot of Western companies are much better off acquiring local companies that have mm-hmm. figured out and solved for the local markets, which is not an easy thing, especially in you know, somewhere like Nigeria where yeah. like, there's, there's like the top of the market, there's the bottom of the market, and then the middle is just so fragmented. There's yeah. all these different... Um, and so I think that a lot of African entrepreneurs need to have more confidence what they're doing yeah. um, and you know I think that we'll see uh, the ecosystem rising just as a result of that that mindset mm-hmm. shift on the ground yeah um, I, I t- definitely agree with you yeah. yeah and so you know the the whole idea of bringing Silicon Valley ideas over to Africa and trying to localize it you know there's um, a whole emergence of AI blockchain and all these these new technologies but you know do you think that there's an actual like practical use case for some of these things because like especially i say especially blockchain that we're like there's so many buzzwords thrown out of the yeah. different use cases and mm-hmm. certainly remittances makes a lot of sense as as a perfect use case for that but you know kind of bringing those those concepts to reality i mean over the next we'll say five years do you think that some of these like uh way ahead technologies in silicon valley can actually have a practical impact on the ground mm-hmm. i i 
Yes, I think so. And I'm probably biased because, you know, just personally, I'm personally fascinated with um, blockchain AI and frontier technologies generally. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is because a lot of the problems on the continent are big problems that require big solutions, right? And they are problems that require efficient solutions as well. So what is happening with frontier technologies is that, you know, you get more efficient with I mean, we'll talk about the negative sides, but positives first of all. So you get really efficient with the solutions you're trying to achieve. Another thing is also time. It saves you time. Mm. See, um, a lot of countries on the continent have been behind for far too long. Um, and in order for you to be able to catch up, you need, you know, you need that shit you know, you just need this cheat code, which I think a lot of frontier technologies bring. Now, specifically in terms of use cases, um, blockchain, for instance, fascinating concept. Um, the reason why it's important in a context like Nigeria is because of the core of blockchain, which is transparency. Now, Nigeria loses a lot because of the trust deficits in the country. So this trust deficit manifests in different things, from business relationships to personal relationships, right, to even perception in terms of, like, how the outside world perceives you just because you're Nigerian. Right. Um, so when you think about the fact that a technology like blockchain exists um, and the core tenet of that technology is transparency, you know that it begins to give you a currency that is scarce in a country like Nigeria. So that trust currency, right? So people are like, okay, fine. I don't probably trust you one-on-one. -on -one. I don't have to trust you, but I trust this technology. So because of that, we can do this business transaction. And then by the time you think about it and then you expand it to um, you know, B2C, banks to customers, you know, customers to customers, you begin to see that, okay, fine, we, we, if we're using this technology, our customers trust us more and then we can scale better. So in terms of like blockchain, so for me, the use case for blockchain in different countries is not really about about the specific things they're doing with the, with, the, with, the, with the blockchain. It's really about the fact that do people understand this technology and then how does that change cultural at, um, alt, um, attitudes that have kept people locked in you know, under development. That's how yeah. I think about it. Yeah. Um, and then with something like AI, for instance, which, you know, there are fantastic use cases, use cases all over the world, right? But I think, interestingly, I'm very particular about the application of AI to agriculture and food security. Mm -hmm. um, the reason, so there's so many things you can use AI for, um, but on, in, in the context of Africa, I think that that's, that's basically it for me, and I think that we have to begin to focus on, on that area, and for different reasons, right? The first one being that Africa as a country provides a lot of the food that the rest of the world, um, world eats. So in order for us to be able to provide even more, right? Like, you know, you're thinking about things like you can use um, artificial intelligence to predict, um, to, to, to predict um, different seasons and how a particular crop is going to do and if you have, you know, a disease pending and stuff like that. All those things that actually reduce the productivity um, of farmers, you can actually solve it with AI. I have a client who is basically a company that uses artificial intelligence to predict the farming yields of farmers, and farmers can actually take those details to the bank and get loans. Historically, banks don't understand, like, they don't lend to farmers because they don't understand, so they're just like, oh, well, you have data that shows, okay, based off XYZ, these are the yields I'm expecting, and based off this, I can, you know, um, you can lend me money. So all those very simple things, I think, are very important. So in terms of, like, AI blockchain that's what i think it is but i think that in, in terms of the particular use cases we now need to figure out like where 
where is this going to be the most valuable? And personally, like I said, it's just a personal bias. For blockchain, I think it's most valuable in decreasing the trust deficit. And then for AI, I think it's most valuable in agriculture and food security. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that this whole, the whole conversation of leapfrogging, it has to move beyond just mobile money and, mm-hmm. and fintech, you yeah. know, because that's, I think there's a quote that has been in my mind for a while. I think you said it. I don't know. I don't know if you said it, but you know, you give a a, a poor farmer, or a poor person in Africa, a mobile wallet. They're so you know, they're so poor. They still have zero dollars yeah. in the bank Yeah, I did so, say that. You know, <laughs> I think the um, you know the the ability to start collecting data on the person and give them access to credit. I mean, mm-hmm. that's certainly a game changer and something yeah. that uh, is still playing out very very slow. Um, but I think, in my opinion, I think. Internet of Things mm-hmm. can have a huge impact on agriculture. Oh yeah, that's um, true. Mm-hmm. In terms of increasing crop yield, although you know the the last episode we had was with this guy Andrew Mack, who's working on a solution to fix the supply chain problem of helping farmers get their crops to market. And you know the conversation we were had is around the fact that all these foundations are focusing on how do we help farmers increase the yield, but it doesn't matter if you're increasing yield if you can't get those crops to market, right? So I think that's a big problem, and I am personally biased towards VR as a big impact to the market solely for the fact that I think that one of the biggest problems in the world right now is a lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have all these, um, you know, people sitting in these these boardrooms that are making decisions and these, you know, multinationals have gotten so big around the world that it's hard for them to have empathy for, uh, you know, the, the, their broader stakeholders. Yeah. And so I see VR as a way to... Um, communicate what's actually happening on the grounds in the way that is able to de- like help people develop the empathy and develop a perspective of what what's it actually like to be a farmer in Africa or mm-hmm. what's it actually like to be on the ground in Hong Kong protesting right now and so you know that's me- media bias but you know that's yeah. that's where I see yeah. the, the biggest impact yeah and that's understandable you know I totally understand that. <laughs> <laughs> of course I, yeah I don't know I mean certainly AR is 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 interesting I mean I I don't know maybe Glasses can help farmers with like detect diseases in crops or something. I, Maybe I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think I think certainly blockchain with with how value is stored and, mm-hmm. and moves around the continent. I mean, yeah. if you're able to move value more efficiently, I mean that that could do so much. And you know, combining that with the the new uh, continental free trade agreement, that's mm-hmm. kind of uh, frees up the actual physical moving of goods yeah. and, and the tariffs that go along with that. I think we can really unlock some some value yeah. and some growth in Africa with yeah. with all that. I, I all totally that agree. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I think the one thing that can certainly unlock value in Africa and help growth much quicker is you know how do we get more capital to mm-hmm. flow into these markets? Mm-hmm. And I think there are a couple problems. I think one is something I've heard you mention before, where it's like you have all these um, people like yourself that that hustle in the diaspora and that have moved migrated or come over here to the U.S. or Europe and um, you know, built their way up into the middle, upper middle class and want to invest back on the continent, but there's not a lot of visibility into like, where do I put this capital? Like, where's the opportunity? How do I connect with uh, a fundable project that mm-hmm. I can actually, you know, trust the, the entrepreneur that's operating on the ground? So I think that's that's one problem. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why there hasn't been a platform that's built or that has more traction to kind yeah. of connect the two. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really interesting because, um, you know, we had mentioned Scale My Hustle earlier, but when I started Scale My Hustle, what mm-hmm. we're trying to do, we're, we're trying to build a Tinder for investors and, mm. um, okay. <laughs> and like investors. That. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's exactly what we're trying to do. Okay. 
but we discovered a very, very, a very serious problem. Um, so at the outset, you know, it was just me thinking about the technology before thinking about, you know, the the problem I was trying to solve. So it was like build this platform, put people on it. It's like a deal sourcing platform and whatever. Really, just a dating site for investors and investing companies. And um, it was very easy for us to just see. Okay, fine. How many? So I had as a lawyer, I had like a due diligence checklist, and I was like, okay, if, before anybody comes on this platform, these are the things you have to have done: one, two, three, four, five. And by the time I started speaking to people, went on the field. Um, so you know, so my staff came back to me, and they're like, this is not going to work. So this is after like three months of you know talking to people, having interviews, and I'm like, what are you guys saying? And they said, because your due diligence checklist, nobody's going to pass it. And I was like, okay, so what do we do? So now we started doing the hard problem of just putting out content. So now you have a lot of entrepreneurs on the continent, and this is not me trying to, um, to, to, to color every entrepreneur with the, the same brush. But the thing is, a lot of um, investing in companies and the whole VC model and all of that is still pretty new on the mm -hmm. continent. Um, and because of that, people are used to just running their businesses how they want to run it, right? Like, so the reason why a lot of startups in the US are structured the way they are is because investors basically would ask for it. Your investor will ask you what your, you know, for your board documents. They will ask you for, you know, what are you doing? They will ask you for your marketing plans. They will ask you for all those things and then you just have to do it. So like really, even if you were too lazy to do it, just because you have somebody's money you just want to do it so now um so one of the things that we said was we're like if you want to be able to bring in outside capital into the continent there's a translation problem because the way the way the startups or the companies run on the continent is very different from the way these investors are used to investing in companies so they ask if particular startup maybe on the platform for xyz documents and they don't have it so we said okay fine you know what before we build this Tinder for investors and investees, why don't we start with the hard work of education, which is basically saying, what does, you know, just basically starting from scratch. And it was, it blew my mind to find out that there was nothing like that. So Scale My Hustle grew into a community of about 20,000 20, entrepreneurs in less than one year. Wow. And the reason... And are, are all of them on the continent? Yes. Wow. Well, well, most of them on the continent. So I'll say about... 70% on the continent and the rest are like Africans in diaspora. Mm. And then, you know, it grew like that. And the reason why it grew that, that fast, because people from the, from the outset had no idea I was even involved because people will say, oh, it's because Mo has like a large social media presence. It wasn't that. Because people, even up till now, a lot of people still don't know that I was involved in that project. I just started talking about it personally, you know, now. Um, so, but it grew because it was such a need, like, you know, basic things. And it was, I call it the bias of obviousness. This was just an obvious problem and then nobody was just solving it. So you had people just doing things in fragments. But it was crazy to me that as a startup in Africa, there was nowhere I could go to and just find resources and say, if I want to properly structure my startup and set myself up for scale, these are the one, two, three, four, five things I need to do. And it was just, you know, crazy. So that's how we started. And hopefully one of the things we would do again is to evolve into this, you know, this whole, this deal matching um, platform that we wanted to do. And through Scale My Hustle, what has happened is because we're interacting with entrepreneurs every day, we're having workshops, we're having seminars, we're having conferences, small, large, you know, medium-sized, whatever, we, we're seeing what the problems are. And for me, it's it's just fascinating. We have so much data that it's just like, oh my God, what are we going to do with all this information? So we're just seeing what people are going through and the day-to-day -day problems that people actually, you know, 
face um, when they're trying to build their company. So this is not data like, you know, that is just random. This is data they are getting from people real time as they're actually doing the hard work of building. So right. I think once we're done with this whole data collection stage, maybe for another couple couple months or even a year, then we would build out this platform. Yeah, but I think you're solving two, there are two capital problems in Africa. There's actual money, but there's human capital, which is mm-hmm. all, you know almost a bigger problem. Yeah. Um, that's why Africa needs its diaspora right now, yeah. really bad, to come back to the continent and actually start a business. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well. I mean, people always ask me, and they're like, see, Mo, when are you moving back to Nigeria? And I say, you know, I spend my time, I spend so much time in Nigeria. And what do I mean by that? I'm here in the U.S., but I'm constantly in Nigeria in the sense that, you know, I'm constantly doing projects in Nigeria. Like, right. you know, I'm constantly working with entrepreneurs on the continent. I'm constantly on social media. The only thing I talk about is Nigeria, right? Like, so I'm like, I might not be there physically, but I'm, yeah. you know, definitely your soul, there. Your soul is always there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, well, yeah, I totally agree with you. And then for me, one of the things I always tell, because okay, uh, separately, I've been speaking to a couple of friends. Um, and we're trying to put together like a diaspora fund. And Mm. now a lot of people have tried to do that before. One of the things I was telling them is, see, it doesn't even have to be just money, right? Like, so if you have specific skill sets that you can provide some mentorship with, um, some mentorship um, support to startups, that would be great. So I'm talking to people now, and this is really fascinating for me. Um, So separately, as I scale my husband at Vasiligo, I have, uh, I'm a partner at an early stage investing fund. It's called Tip Hub. It's pretty Okay, I know Chica. Oh, you know Chica? Yeah. Oh, great. So yeah, so um, so yeah, so Chica and Bayer are, are my partners, and mm. then we're raising a fund, just a small fund, um, diaspora fund. Um, and is that uh, with diasporas as LPs or to invest in diasporas? Um, diasporas as LPs. Okay. So basically, people like me, people like Chica, people like you know everybody else that we know yeah. who has some spare cash, put it together in a fund, and then invest in businesses on the continent. Um, so 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 yes. So one of the things I was discussing with my partners really is. We don't. It doesn't necessarily also have to be money. You can provide mentorship support. So even if you are here working in Google or working in Amazon, wherever you are working, or Facebook or whatever, you can actually sit down in, you know, California or Seattle or DC, and still be able to provide that first level, you know, mentorship, close support to a particular startups. If you are, if you are a product person, you can begin to provide that kind of support. Does that support that people need? And again, people need it a ton because I can see it again from scale my house. So in terms of like diaspora, because there are many reasons why a lot of people are still stuck here. I, for instance, I have student loans to pay and I know if I move back to, <laughs> if I move back to Nigeria, I mean, by the time you do the conversion, it doesn't right, even right. make any sense. So, <laughs> so there are so many reasons, you know, personal economic reasons why people are here. But one of the things I also preach instead of just telling people, oh, move back is, what are the simple things you can do, right? Like, even from where you are, even if it's just giving somebody else access to markets, right? Like, you know, there's a startup here that needs an inroad into getting the clients in the U.S., you can do that. Very basic things. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. And, you know, I think, I mean, the, the problems back, the problems in Africa are so big and complicated. Yeah. Um, and it certainly, I think mentorship is solving a big problem. Because yeah. I think we need to, we need to, just raise the consciousness of people on the ground in Africa. I think you know that's that's what's that's what's needed, and I think that's going to happen from diaspora coming back. And I mean, you know, th- things like this, like we more kind of media being created mm-hmm. that that kind of people on the ground can relate to and um, can learn from. And so mm-hmm. I think what you're doing with that is is fantastic, both from the fun and mentorship side. But I do want to talk about fund structure, okay, right? Because sure. I do know that. So, so from what I've seen. And I think this is common consensus that VC funds, the 10-year life cycle is like 
does doesn't really work for Africa. It's mm-hmm. it's not long enough. Like deal deals have deals take a lot longer in Africa, right? You have to have multiple um, multiple dinners, multiple you know. Um, and I think that, and I would love to get your opinion on the um, pledge fund versus a blind pool mm-hmm. structure. Like I, it doesn't. I don't feel like blind pool would, is the right structure for a recent mm-hmm. fund in Africa. I feel like mm-hmm. pledge fund makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but like with with your fund, like is, are you structuring in any unique way, or like how do you advise kind of your, your VC clients that that yeah. look to uh, play, so, place capital? Okay, so on the flip side, so that's two things, right? So aside running vast legal, where I, where I provide um, legal services to VC funds this tip hub which is still you know we putting together our fund mm-hmm. so in terms of our fund structure for tip hub um that's still under wraps okay but gen on the but in terms of like advice to um to vc funds the truth is these funds have been structured way before they come to me so even before they have mm. things on paper so they have lfp commitments and they know exactly what they want to do so what i tell them is this if you have um, this particular fund structure, that's fine. But what you should be able to do is make sure all your fund documentation and your fund structure itself is adaptable. Because as you start to invest, you begin to see you begin to see different different things, and then you want to be able to you want to put yourself in that position where you can adapt. That's very different from somewhere in the U.S. where funds are just doing because there's been years and years of doing exactly the same thing, right? So people already know this is how things work and all of that. When you're coming to a place where people are still experimenting and people are still trying to figure out what's going on, the basic thing that you need to understand is that your fund structure has to be adaptable. So in terms of like the structure, honestly, I don't think one to this structure is better than the other. One of the things I even I, I actually even advise my clients is multiple structures. And what I mean by that is depending on the kind of startup you're investing in um, and the stage where they are, you have to be able to provide structures that are flexible enough to accommodate the company and the company's growth and the type of growth the company is having. That's also another thing that's very important. The type of growth you see with African um, startups are very different from the type of growth you see, see in the U.S., for mm. instance. And you, when you say that, is, it, is that because of like the, the kind of fragmented markets that yes. they're, they're going across? Okay. Yes. So, so basically, um, yes. So that, 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 that's, that's very important. So, so, you, so when, you, when you think about it like that, so one of the things I always say is, say, whatever you're doing, just make sure that you have a fund structure that is flexible, that you can bring people back to the table and say, okay, this is not working or this is working, so what do we do about this? And it's very, and, and I think that um, also for people like me who are really, because I, I was joking, I was telling um, my associate and I said, you know what, we are the people actually just really writing history right now. Like history is happening right now because that document that you are drafting, so, so from, from time to time we have like some very, um, bespoke fund structures for clients and I say that document that you're you're doing right now somebody else is going to pick it up a couple of years and then build on top of it right so you have to be super responsible what you're doing and they're like oh more you're taking things too personal I'm like yeah but that's really it's that's it because we are creating we're literally creating stuff from scratch these are things that don't exist on the continent so we're doing things from scratch so everything you're doing you have to understand that you are literally writing history um so, so so I think when you think about it that way you know you begin to know that it's very important for people to stay adaptable and flexible so when i have fun documents that have very strong language and all of that i just advise my clients and say you know what this is great the way it is but we also need to build in flexibility into this because it's important we're all learning on the process and as things happen you want to be able to go back to the drawing board and say you know what 
let's change this. Okay. Yeah, I've learned a lot about you know different startup and company structures all all around the world from just from doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, like like in China, for example, um, Western investors they they, they never dire- directly invest in the yeah, so domicile. Yeah. It's it's domiciled like Hong Kong yeah. or maybe Delaware or Singapore. Mm-hmm. Then. Um, you know, the, there's all, all sorts of structures that, that gets them in, yeah. into China. And so with that being said, I do want to get your opinion on just one, one slice of one issue. So uh, referring to Jumia, um, do you think the argument that because they're domiciled in France, they're not technically a, or maybe it's Germany, they're not technically an African company? What yeah, I mean, they are registered in, in, in Germany with um, operations in France, something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I would give my personal opinion, right? Yes. And this is not, this is, this is, what is an African company, right? Like, what is a U.S. company? A U.S. company is a company that is active in the U.S. and mm. solving a problem in the U.S., right? So when you think about it that way, if, if a company is on the continent and is solving problems on the continent, then it's just as might as well be African, right? Like you know, because when you think about it, think about the biggest um, when when you think about the biggest companies on the continent, a lot of them you know are not run by Africans that have you know that kind of you know everybody. I don't know what when people say Jumia is not a, an African company. I don't really know what the argument is or what the argument should be. Um, but when we think about it, it was it was basically a company that was set up to solve a problem on the continent, employing people on the continent. Some of the, how do you know, people say, oh, because the top level staff were not, um, are not Africans and stuff like that. But one, when you, if you want to understand the impact of Jumia as a startup on the continent, check the CEOs and COOs of some of the most successful startups on the continent today, you would see that at some point they either you know, started off in Jumia or have some connection with that, um, with, you know, Jumia somehow, somewhere. So I think that in terms of like forgetting who's running the company and all of that, Jumia came in at a point where, you know, the system was still, the ecosystem was still young and all of that and still sort of like gave the ecosystem some elevation globally. Now, I don't like to, and this is not to, you know, um, to give you to give some credit to Jumia or anything like that, but the truth is, we still we still know that in order for you to be able to have those um, elevated conversations, you actually still need people like Rocket, you know, to come mm. and do stuff on the continent. People will start looking and say, "Oh, if Rocket is here, then there has to be something there." And it's so sad, but that's just the way it is, right? Like, yeah. You know, people, there are certain people in the world that have to start looking, you know, um, for instance, um, you have, you know, Google coming to, to do Launchpad Africa and people are like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Google is here. You know, when you have, or you have a Facebook, for instance, opening an office in Nigeria, or then you have the, the AI center um, by Microsoft in Ghana, like, you know, yeah. those kind of things. Like, so when those things happen, like, it begins to draw people's attention. So one of the things, has Jumia drawn the attention and helped the growth of the African ecosystem? I would say yes, arguable so. Like one of the largest shareholder in Jumia is MTN. MTN yep. is a South African company. Um, so, so yeah, so for me, if you've come, rolled up your sleeves, try to do some work, on, try to do work in the continent, whether you fail or you are successful, I, you know, I think that you might as well be, yeah, because that's where you are actually doing work. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I think the story yet, yet to be written because the, the lockup period still hasn't yeah. hit. So uh, we'll see what MTN does after that. Yeah. Um, 
But Mel, this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot yeah. from this episode. Let's finish this off, I guess, with um, to all the Western investors and Western people that are looking to do stuff in Africa. You know, what, what would you say to them? Um, what would your advice be to kind of come over and, and operate on the continent in, in the proper way? Yeah, so my advice would be, first of all, understand the problem that you're trying to solve and then also focus on your deal sourcing, right? So how are you finding your deals? If you are if you are finding your deals through the traditional means of deal sourcing, it's going to be quite difficult for you to actually find real impactful companies solving problems. So you have to go outside your um, cycles. You have to really make a conscious effort to understand the terrain. You don't even have to go to Lagos or Nairobi or Joburg to do that, but it's just thinking outside the box in terms of like, you know what, how do I find these deals? There's so many, I was having a conversation with, with a colleague um, a couple of days ago and I said, see, we're replicating a lot of not only Silicon Valley, um, you know, startups and ideas, but also the problems. For instance, the, the, the amount of funding that has gone to female entrepreneurs on the continent is, is actually embarrassing, right? And it doesn't reflect the fact that, you know, um, the high percentage of people who are actually entrepreneurs on the continent are women. So, like, that's, that's, that, that's mind-blowing to me. And the reason why that is happening, aside the obvious gender bias, is also because these are Silicon Valley's bias in terms of, like, gender bias that is just being replicated on the continent. So I say, as an investor, if you're looking, about, if you're looking to invest on the continent, you kind of, like, have to leave aside everything you know about investing, which is a hard thing to do, and just, like, just learn. Just say, say, you know what? I want to understand the context. And I feel before you actually put your money in, understand the, the even if it's just a tiny problem you're trying to solve. You don't have to say, oh, I want to solve healthcare in Nigeria or whatever it is. But pick a part of the problem and say, okay, data. I want to be able to solve that. Understand why the data problem even exists in the first place. It's very useful because that way you begin to know the kind of companies you should actually be investing in because you understand what the root of the problems are. Right. So that's what I was saying. Awesome. Well, Mo Dele, founder of Scale My Hustle, <laughs> founding partner at Vazi Legal. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I had fun. Awesome. Me too. <laughs> awesome.